0: Hello, welcome to the Grumpy Strategist podcast, episode 10. This is the Christmas New Year edition. I'm Michael Shoebridge and I'm here with SAA's Head of Research, Dr. Marcus Hellyer. Marcus, how are you feeling in the lead up to Christmas, even though everyone will be hearing this after Santa has turned up?
1: Well, I'm feeling like it's the end of the year. It's been a big year, you know, SAA started from nothing and here we are, double figures in podcasts already. So thank you to everybody out there who's actually listened to us. That's, it's amazing. So uh, it's really great that people are out there listening and giving us feedback.
0: It is. It is. And I've really enjoyed talking with you. But I tell you what, I am grumpy in this lead up to Christmas because I don't think 2023 is ending well for Australia, our government or our military. And to have to talk about this in this way, right as we approach the new year, is not encouraging.
1: I have to agree, Michael. I was thinking we could have a sort of retrospective episode sort of trying to pull out some good things that have happened this year and yet there's been a few things happen that have just sort of set off my grumpyometer as well.
0: Mm. So I feel like Australia has been mugged by reality. And I'm yes. really talking about the twin events just in the last couple of weeks of the Hootie attacks in the Red Sea and the international response and also the floods in North Queensland. And the reason these really come together in my mind is I think there are some parallels and some indicators and warnings about the health of the Australian military from both. So, um, yeah, I mean,
1: this, this is what it looks like when you sit around watching your warning time evaporate and do nothing about it. And what's more, once you've noticed that your warning time has evaporated, You still do nothing about it. So I agree. We are seeing all of the indicators and warnings that our military is not in good shape.
0: Mm. If Australia was a country that did Thanksgiving, we'd be seeing a lot of turkeys coming home to roost Mm. at this moment. So what I think I mean about that is in both cases, when the floods happened up around Cairns and caused enormous destruction and there were people in great distress in small communities on roofs and up trees needing to be rescued. And in the Red Sea, where the Houthis are threatening this critical sea lane that feeds trade between Asia and Europe and uh, is critical to the global economy and things like petrol prices over Christmas. Both occasions, the federal government looks at what Australia can do about these problems and the ADF, our Defence Force, is meant to be a key tool that provides options. And in both cases, the tools were either blunt or the cupboard was bare. So why don't you talk about the situation around helicopters and floods, but what that means for real military operations too?
1: Well, yes. So our listeners may recall that earlier this year, The MRH-90 fleet, so the Army's utility helicopters, the helicopters that do all of those everyday tasks. The Taipans. The Taipans, uh, there was a very unfortunate fatal accident. The fleet was grounded, and then the government decided it wouldn't actually return the fleet to service. The previous government had agreed to get a replacement fleet of Black Hawks, even though only a, a handful had arrived. The government said it was not going to return the MRH 90s to service, but it would tr- attempt to somehow accelerate the entry into service of the Blackhawks. So at the time, a number of commentators, including ourselves, were saying, but this leaves a very significant capability gap if the army doesn't have a utility helicopter fleet. So you won't be able to move troops around the battlefield. You won't be able to do an amphibious landing. Very questionable about whether the special forces can do a hostage recovery, a counter-terrorist operation. And coming into bushfire and hurricane season, what's the ADF going to be able to to do to assist in providing utility helicopters.
0: Well, the problem is this has turned out not to be a hypothetical problem. So, you know, thank, thank God we haven't had a, a hostage recovery requirement. Thank God we're not at war. But disaster relief in North Queensland has demonstrated the limitations that the ADF has because of this capability gap.
1: Mm, so it does appear that the, the Army has deployed Chinook helicopters, so th- there is something there. But Chinook helicopters are, uh, are very big. You know, they can carry cargo, they can do certain things, but they there's roles they can't do. If, if they could do everything, we wouldn't be getting Blackhawks.
0: Well, they've got a very powerful downdraft because they're big, heavy helicopters. They take a lot of power to keep in the air, and they've got two very large rotors. So imagine them trying to hover over an unfortunate resident up a tree. There's likely to be no tree... And no resident Mm. so So, that's a problem and then they've had commercial helicopters helping out too I see that are leased by the military but they don't have winches so how do you get someone off a roof or out of a tree what you can probably just wave at them and encourage them to hang on for a bit longer uh,
1: and the irony is is those commercial helicopters were leased so the ADF would have enough helicopters to provide their pilots with enough hours to keep up their concurrency so that they could flying military, military helicopters military yeah. helicopters so, so it's the the ironies abound here but to me the, the the big issue is is that so, if we do need to do a, a military operation, can we actually do it mm. and well we 've got two big lhds our big amphibious ships they 're designed to operate with a fleet of utility
0: helicopters. so what are we doing with them at the moment so it's a domino effect through the through the capability to conduct operations in our region so even if you accept the defence logic that disaster relief is everybody else's problem, but the militaries, which I don't accept, well, the limitations on the ADF's ability to conduct military operations because of this capability problem in in rotary wing, they're they're now obvious. This is this is an indicator and in warning.
1: I agree entirely. So my understanding is, and I've heard on the grapevine. I'm happy to be corrected if Defence is out there listening. Please give us the actual number of Black Hawks the ADF. Country has The number I've heard is, is only three. The portfolio budget statements that came out in May said we'd have five by the end of this financial year. Now, the government has said they're trying to accelerate that number. So, But what's what's the ground truth here? How mm. many do we actually have? How many are actually operational? And what capability do we actually have at the moment?
0: Well, and you know that when you're bringing a new aircraft into service, it's not just how many airframes you have. There's a whole logistics system to be set up and the whole thing has to be qualified against the requisite airworthiness and technical standards. So having three in the country doesn't mean three can be sent anywhere, and the rule of threes mean even if you could, you've got one of them available. So even if there's five by the end of the financial year, that is not a capability. So the army will be living with these deployment and military operation. Limitations for some time yet.
1: Yes, and so you raised the issue of capability transitions and we've spoken about this before, we've written about this before. Capability transitions are difficult. It's always hard to maintain a level of capability throughout a transition as you're going from the old system to the new system. But this should have been a relatively straightforward transition. So the Ooh. MRH-90 relatively, Proven system, certainly in, in no ways at the end of its life, still a lot of life left in those Still airframes. new helicopters. Large international user community moving to the Black Hawk, so proven capability again, large international user community. We know Black Hawks because we previously operated them. It well, should- and the
0: Navy is flying the, the sibling of the Black Hawk, the Seahawk, so they're, they're as known as you get.
1: Yeah. So it should have been the most straightforward capability transition imaginable. And yet we've ended up with a massive capability gap. And so if that one doesn't work, it sort of raises all kinds of questions around other capability transitions that we are launching at the moment, such as surface ships and submarines. And I would say those are massively riskier. Than the helicopter one.
0: And much more complex because, in both cases, we're not going to a system that is well known, we're going to an entirely new system that we've never had before. Mm. And uh, also the risk in our legacy fleet, in both cases, the Collins and the Anzacs, is clearly growing in a large way, which brings me to the Red Sea.
1: A very nice segue, Michael.
0: Thank you. If you wanted another indicator and warning about the actual health of Australia's military power, the events of the last week and a half have given us a very ugly wake-up call. So the Americans had been already shooting down armed drones and cruise missiles fired at their ships towards Israel and at international shipping around the Red Sea. And they had been successful, but clearly they needed help. And clearly they wanted it to be as broad an international coalition as possible. They put a request out to Australia and many other nations, about 39. And the Australian government's response has been to give strong support in words with a diplomatic statement. And we've told ourselves that's what the Americans really wanted. They wanted our strong diplomatic support. But we have been unable to provide a single warship to this International Maritime Task Force. Meanwhile, the Seychelles, Canada, Norway, Spain, the UK... France, they're providing warships. The
1: the Seychelles are well known for punching above their weight, Mark.
0: Yes. Yes, well, I heard the New Zealand Prime Minister talking proudly about how New Zealand has always punched above its weight in the defence sphere, and I was wondering what that meant. But, yes, the Seychelles have sent a vessel, but we can't. But we're apparently really pleased that the Americans only wanted our strong diplomatic support and maybe some uniformed people anywhere but in the water.
1: Well, again, this I think is what it looks like when you've essentially watched your warning time evaporate over 10 years and done nothing about it. And then even worse, you've said your warning time has evaporated and still you've done virtually nothing about it. So if we look at our, our surface fleet, we have three air warfare destroyers, which are pretty capable ships, but they are the sum total of our modern surface fleet. Mm. ships with large numbers of missile cells capable area air defense radars that would be the kind of ship that would be similar to a, the the US destroyers that are, like are there the USS
0: Carney that shot down what 22 Hootie drones and missiles in a day mm. yeah
1: so but even the Carney has twice as many missile cells as our air warfare destroyers which are our Our biggest, most capable service combatant Mm. The rest of our service combatant fleet Are the Anzacs So our our workhorses have been around now For over two decades Doing good service But they only have eight missile cells Now the ESSM, the Evolved Sea Sparrow Missile You can quad pack into one of those cells So theoretically you could carry 32 missiles But if the Houthis are firing dozens of missiles And killer drones at you Your magazines are going to be exhausted very quickly.
0: Mm, Well, there's two problems, isn't there? So I've had people say to me, oh, Michael, our Navy is well-equipped to deal with the Houthis drones because the evolved Sea Sparrow missile is a great missile, very effective. Absolutely true. but it's $2
1: million a pop.
0: Yeah. So the the Houthis are winning every way here. How much does it cost them for their armed drone? Is it $1,000? Do they get them free from Iran? And what if they decide on one day to send 40 armed drones and a couple of cruise missiles towards the single frigate. Well, that's going to be a very bad day for the frigate. And even the USS Carney saying 22-0, that's great. But the scoreline only has to be 47-1, and it's a very bad day for the Americans and a very good day for the Hooties.
1: Yes. So once again, we're seeing a case where we really haven't kept up with what's going on in the world, which is the proliferation of the smaller, smart, the many. So the very, the cheap expendable systems that Every day we're seeing in use in Ukraine where literally tens of thousands of drones are being used every day, and so those technologies are proliferating because they're very cheap, very easy to do, and anyone effective. can do it. And so if you're on the side of the the two million dollar missiles and the multi billion dollar ships versus the thousand dollar drones or the cheap and cheerful anti ship missiles that the Iranians have cloned from the Chinese and are now providing to the Houthis, we're on the wrong side of the value for money equation mm. there.
0: I had someone else say to me, oh, the Houthis have been a real surprise. Well, they attacked the Saudi oil installation back in 2019 with a combination of precision missiles and precision-armed drones, and they caused enormous destruction and financial damage. That's four years ago. So this has been a, a surprise that's been a long time coming and has happened in plain sight.
1: Well, and they also sank an Emirati Vessel, which I believe off the top of my head was a former Australian fast catamaran. I'd have to check that. So there are no surprises here, Michael.
0: No, another irony, of course, is that Australian companies make some of the best cost-effective counter drone systems on the planet. So Defentex, it's a a person-operated system. You don't even have to bolt it onto your ship. and. EOS, a Canberra-based company, makes extremely effective counter-drone systems that have precision laser and optical mm-hmm. targeting and fire cannon rounds. So very, far more cost-effective than a $2 million missile, and you've got more than 32 of them. Mm
1: and the the Anzacs don't even have a a seaweed, a close in weapon system like the the venerable phalanx you know the giant gatling gun that puts up a wall of, of large bullets so, so it doesn't have one of them so you know you go well but we are getting the hunters the hunter class frigates but
0: remind I'm, me when the first of those turns up
1: i'm thinking 2033 10 is, years from is now is the date that defence has been using assuming the there's one. no
0: assuming there's no schedule slippage in a program that's had schedule slippage. It'll be 10 years before the Navy gets its first new warship.
1: Yes, and then we're talking roughly two-year drumbeat. So you sort of sketch out the transition, if we get back to our theme of transitions, mm. our surface fleet transition, our poor old Anzacs, well, some of them will have to stay in service probably deep into the 2040s.
0: And if if I was a doctor and the Anzac was my patient... I'd be seeing this Red Sea event as showing alarming levels of ill health. And I know that I've got to keep this patient as in top shape for the next... 15 years. So I'd I'd be starting to to talk to them gently about their retirement options.
1: Well, the bad guys pay attention. So the bad guys look at our warships and they go, well, these warships are optimised with their capable phased array radars and their small numbers of ESSM's. They're optimised to shoot down small numbers
0: of cruise missiles. Of of advanced missiles, yeah. So,
1: well, I'm going to do everything else if I want to attack an ANZAC. I'm going to use different methods. Well, I'd be
0: learning from the Hooties. I would be learning from... And the Ukrainians. Remember, the Ukrainians have sunk a bunch of Russian ships and destroyed a submarine in novel ways. They haven't taken on the strength of the Mm. Russian Navy. They've exploited its weaknesses.
1: In constrained waters, large numbers of USVs, so uncrewed surface vessels like the uh, Ukrainians have been using, could be a major threat. So constrained waters, maybe like the Red Sea or, or some of the uh, straits. I
0: know people say, "Oh gosh, you know our regions. It's huge. You know the distances, time and motion problems." But there are some really obvious choke points, aren't there? So to, for China, for its navy to get out of the first island chain, it's got to go through some extremely narrow, predictable archipelagic sea lanes. Those are constrained waters too. Anyway, this is a massive indicator and warning of ill health in the Navy, and the flood problem is a massive indicator of ill health in the Army. Fortunately, we haven't had one for the Air Force at this moment. Maybe that's a New Year thing. But the other interesting thing about this, though, is the root cause of this problem, to me, is something that's important to identify. Because if I'm just a taxpayer, I'm looking at the Australian Defence Budget, and it's grown from $32 billion a year in 2016 to $52.6 billion this year. And it seems the net result is we're getting less capability. So we can't send a single warship into not a high-end warfighting situation, but a mid-range warfighting situation. And we can't help out with disaster relief. It makes you wonder, what can the ADF do that gives any credible value for money? And then the big answer to all this, the great white hope for our military, are the eight AUKUS nuclear submarines, which are still very a distant proposition. And the unfortunate fact is we know from the Australian Submarine Agency, because a whole bunch of documentation has just been released to the parliament, we know that that is just going to be a giant sucking sound of resources out of the rest of the military. So these problems we see with the Navy and the Army now are really just a glimpse of how bad the problems are going to get as the AUKUS submarines suck all of the money out of the organisation.
1: Yes. So what was the root cause? To me, the root cause is the defence still sits back and thinks time is a free good. It has endless amounts of time to come up with the perfect solution. And which is why we're in this problem, say, with the Hunter class frigates not arriving for another 10 years because you have endless amounts of time. Well, I think that the SSN program is the embodiment of that approach. We have endless amounts of time. Now, you go, well, why, why are we getting the SSNs? And the very first page of the Senate estimates brief, which is the document you were just referring to that Senate... Patrick, or former Senator Patrick, I should say, got released through a Freedom of Information. I, I really
0: respect what Rex Patrick is continuing to do to force transparency on the defence organisation against every fibre in its being. He did that when he was a senator and he's continuing to do that. So I, I really respect his diligence well, I, and effort.
1: I do too. And unfortunately, he is doing what the current government, when they were in opposition, said they would do. Which would be to push for greater transparency. I have seen no signs of that at all Ooh. since they've been so what, in government. So, what
0: has Rex Patrick managed to winkle out? So after we, we have
1: address? the Senate estimates brief for the Australian submarine agency so this is a pack that was be provided to senior leaders in the Australian submarine agency when they go up to Senate estimates hearings and so they've got all of their prepared answers for when senators Ooh. ask questions and that covers a whole range of topics from why we're getting these things to nuclear waste issues to budget staffing whole range of issues and uh, I will put a link to this Ooh. on on the website so lots of interesting stuff there but
0: why are we getting them
1: then what's what's the submarine
0: agency's distillation
1: page one we start with the capability overview and on this capability overview it says for a maritime nation like australia just like the uk and the us maintaining a submarine capability advantages over potential adversaries is vital and that leads into two subordinate sentences first closing or blocking sea lanes Hmm, that sounds familiar, mm. would have a critical impact on Australia's economy and security and that of partners in Southeast Asia, the Pacific and globally. So the sort of mm. thing we might be seeing in the Red Sea right now.
0: Do you think that a relevant sea land that might affect Australia and Asia's economies is The one through the Red Sea and the Suez Canal. You mean the one
1: that 40% of trade between Asia and Europe goes through? Mm. Yes. And by investing in these high-end capabilities, i.e. nuclear-powered submarines, Australia is contributing to a free and open Indo-Pacific region, unimpeded sea lanes, and supporting the conditions for a more stable region. Mm. So once again, we're saying we want this amazing capability, still a decade away for the first ship, to do something that at the moment... We can't do. Now, we can have an argument about whether SSNs are actually any use whatsoever about keeping sea lanes open... But again, once we're sort of admiring the current problem and saying, well, down the track. And by the way, we will have spent, according to this document, between 50 and $58 billion by the time we get the first SSN at the end of this decade to do something we can't do at the
0: moment. Mm. 50 to $58 billion spent before Australia gets the first Australian-commanded-crewed Virginia-class nuclear submarine, that is the same amount that we're spending on the total Defence Force this year. So if you wanted to know, is that a real problem, it is. Because the entire rest of the ADF costs that amount this year. Mm.
1: So I, I find this is more of Defence's very strange, magical thinking. So we have laid out here our submarine fetish. We'll get the world's greatest submarines at some point down the track. Meanwhile, we can't do core business Ooh. right now.
0: Well, I was very... I have been very disturbed. I think it's psychologically jarring to see the government and senior defence officials trumpeting the triumph of the Congress passing some laws to enable Orcas at the same time as we have these real-world indicators of our military weakness. I find that unconscionable and jarring.
1: I mean, I have to say, if I was the US, I'd be going, can you guys really afford this? Can you really afford this?
0: Well, when I was in our embassy in America, I often had... Odd moments of realizing we lived in different worlds because of our relative scale. So I would have conversations with officials in the Pentagon and they'd say things like, Oh, we can give you some software to help model alternative force structures. And I was quite excited. But then I looked at it and it didn't work with the very small numbers in our military. It only worked at the level of number and scale that the Americans had. So if you only had three air warfare destroyers, the software almost said data not found. Mm -hmm. And I would just wonder if in the background of the American decision-making around AUKUS is not this assumption that somehow our scale is more like theirs and not actually really tiny like it is. And if now in Washington they're saying, you know... If they haven't got a warship they can send to the Red Sea because they're so busy doing peacetime patrolling closer to home, is it right for them to spend $368 billion to eventually get eight submarines? Well,
1: yes. So on on that sucking sound issue of resources being sucked into SSNs and away from current pressing issues. Is it happening already? It is certainly happening already. Again, many people have predicted this and we see clear indicators and warnings. So from that same estimates brief, there's discussion of people. So the Australian Submarine Agency on the 31st of August, so three months ago, had 424 people. So we are a decade away from having the first submarine. Already 424 people running the Australian Submarine Agency. That doesn't include any operators. That
0: doesn't include sailors on the boats. Policy people, technical people, planning people, Senate estimates, brief writing people.
1: A lot of star-ranked people as well, which we'll get to. By the end of this financial year, the, the number's meant to be 688. And by the end of next financial year, the number's meant to be 922. So that's 922 administering and doing the planning for SSNs. Well... We've also learned recently from media reporting that one of our fleet of eight Anzac frigates has essentially been put up on blocks because we can haven't got the crew for it. 922 is roughly equivalent to the crew of five Anzac frigates. Ooh. So we're going, hang on, we can't send a, a warship to the Red Sea. We're having to put ships up on blocks because we can't crew them. Meanwhile, an, a number of people in the have order have been diverted. Now, I'm not saying they're the same people, but it gives you a sense of the scale already of the SSN well, enterprise. It's, it's
0: dragging limited human capital. Into it at an accelerating rate, isn't it? So that's, and this is well before the first Virginia class submarine turns up. Mm. So tell me about the top level structure, <laughs> because this is another really obvious public policy problem that the government needs to face with defense, which is as the force shrinks and as recruiting fails the only area of growth in the military or indeed in the civilian workforce is at the senior rank level.
1: Yes, well, so there is a a three-star admiral running the Australian Submarine Agency. So that's
0: equivalent to a deputy uh, secretary in in any other department of state.
1: Yeah, so a vice-admiral, equivalent of a lieutenant general. But we also learned they're uh, currently recruiting two other three-star or band three level people. Into the submarine agents. Yes, so there's one agency will have three three three-star people so that means three people equivalent to say a service chief
0: and in, in my experience every time you get one of these new senior military or civilian positions you need a whole lot of supporting feeder fish and well, sucker fish to there, swim with the whales so you create all these mini extra hierarchies underneath
1: so there seems to be at least six band two or two star officers in the Australian submarine. Agency. So
0: I think that when America started their submarine program, Admiral Rickover was a, a band two at the time. I think I'll check that. But I I, I think I at the time say, he but- the U.S. began their submarine program, they didn't start building this enormous top structure in the hierarchy first. They focused on the program. Even now, I would doubt they have an enormous top structure.
1: Well, it's interesting that the Royal Australian Navy is commanded by one three-star officer. And yet the submarine agency will have three three-star officers. So the agency providing one part of the Navy's
0: capability.
1: So it's, I don't know. I don't know. I just think it's strange, this proliferation of senior officers.
0: However, I think the broader point is we're already seeing the infliction of extra pressures, you know, staffing and human capital pressures and budget pressures on the rest of the military, because of the AUKUS submarines. And who was it that had that song? You know, we've only just begun.
1: Mm, Well, this uh, estimates brief does also have some numbers around cost. We've seen these numbers before when the so-called optimal pathway was announced, but now we actually have them in writing. We can see that the, this is Defense's planning. So it says that in the, the, the first decade of the submarine program, the expenditure will be in the order of 50 to 58 billion. Mm. Now, recall again, end of the first decade gets us about to all things going well, delivery of the first Virginia class submarine. Mm. So around 50 to 58 billion dollars doesn't actually get you any in-service operational capability over that decade. It just gets you to delivery of the first boat. And
0: that first boat is pretty much going to be a training boat, by the way. So any idea that there's a real fighting capability 10 years from now with the first Virginia class under Australian command I think that is just going to—it's—it's it's a factual error to think that. Mm.
1: Now people go, but we're going to buy the attack class submarines, so they've been cancelled, so that will free up a money. there will be savings. Bunch of money. There'll be savings, and in fact, we learned from this that the number is twenty-five billion that defense was planning to spend in that decade on the attack class. So the difference is around thirty billion dollars. So defense and the government have to find thirty billion dollars. Now, if we go back to This year's budget, back in May, there was this sort of strange Mm -hmm. number floating around in the back end of the decade.
0: Like a contingency reserve. Yeah, this contingency
1: reserve number. How much was that? $30 billion. So it does sound like the government is sort of planning to have this pot to cover that gap between the SSN program and the attack class program. But so that increase in spending, though, doesn't get you anything else.
0: So the pain and shortfalls we're seeing with the army and and the surface fleet will continue and get worse because any growth is just to pay the bill for AUKUS submarines. Now, I I think we've got to close this with, so what what would my Christmas gift be to the defence organisation, given this horrible situation of capability shortfalls in the real world right now and plans that only seem to help a decade and more from now? My gift to them would be to burn their integrated investment plan, which is this enormous detailed thing that has all these investment projects for all different systems, platforms, capabilities that goes out 10, 15 and 20 years. Because that artifact, that investment plan is all designed around time being defence's friend and everything being able to happen, as Kevin Rudd said, in due course, in due season. The problem is the world is impinging on Australia, whether we like it or not, and we do not now have that time to just peanut butter everything out 10, 15 and 20 years. And while that big, complex, integrated plan stays in place, defence is bogged and bankrupt because it's committed all its money to things that deliver in the distant future. So it hasn't even got money to fit a cheap counter drone system to a warship that might have to deal with the Hooties. So my gift to them is to take away one of their most prized things, their very long-term, very detailed integrated investment program, and force a complete rebasing of the defence budget on the defence organisation.
1: Well, I, I would agree, and I, and in fact, I the the floods are obviously a terrible thing. Obviously, events in the Red Sea are the product of terrible things happening in in the Middle East. So, I don't want to sort of look at that and say there's there's a silver lining, but. It is, a for the Australian Defence Force, a relatively painless way to learn that they have major capability shortcomings and their current plan is fundamentally broken. Current plan, the current investment plan, built on this view that we have endless time, that time is a free good, is broken. So it's better that we learn Ooh. about the shortcomings of our surface fleet this way than rather a missile attack in the South China Sea. Yes, it's, so it's we better, can... It's better we we learn about the shortcomings in the army this way than when we actually have to deploy to recover some Australians who have been kidnapped in a in some kind of low-level conflict in our region and we can't deploy the LHDs with helicopters. It's better we learn this way. The question is, will defence and the government acknowledge this and learn from these lessons and go, the current plan is broken. We need to start from scratch. We can't just keep twisting tweaking, stretching the current investment plan because that is defence's happy place. I've been Mm. there. Mm. That was my job. And how did you deal with financial pressures in the investment program? Well, you just delay everything a bit and Mm. then a bit more and then a bit more and then a bit more.
0: Yeah, so the answer is not reprioritisation and restacking the suitcase It's about throwing that suitcase away and building a new plan from the ground up that actually starts with, we have no warning time. And one of the things that will show whether the government and defence is doing this is what we see about the surface ship review early in the new year, and another thing will be Is there any urgent operational requirement to make our Navy able to deal with armed drones? They're two indicators to look for improving health in our military capability in the first half of next year. Marcus, it's been a pleasure. Thank you, Michael. I hope you've already had a Merry Christmas as this goes to air, and we'll talk again in the new year.
1: Well, thank you. And I'd just like to thank you for setting up this podcast. It's been a lot of fun doing it this year. And I'd also like to thank our listeners for for coming back and and tuning in. And I also have heard that good news is on the way regarding merch.
0: It is good news. I had a little bit of a time finding a company that didn't have made-in-China mugs because I thought that would just not fit with the brand. But I've found an Australian company that can do this. And the new year is a time of great promise for well, Grumpy Strategist. I, I have
1: to say, I'm looking forward to drinking my morning coffee from our SAA Grumpy Strategist coffee mug.
0: <laughs> great, Marcus. Talk to you soon.